Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Welcome to the Rock Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm on a Zoom grid with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. But there's another face on the RBP grid today, and it belongs to none other than Lloyd Grossman. Hi, Lloyd. Delighted to join this distinguished trio. <laughs> it's good of you to join us today delighted to see you you're going to talk we hope about among other things your formative years as a rock critic hard to believe you gave it all up to become a tv celebrity and the king of pasta sauces <laughs> whatever were you thinking <laughs> we will also be talking a little bit about queen because it's I think it's something like the 50th anniversary of the first time they ever played live in London. We will talk a little bit about the group now known as the Chicks, having they've having removed the word Dixie from their name. And we will, as ever, be talking about all the or some of the new pieces added to Rock's Back Pages this week. Lloyd, take us back to the beginning of your story. How did you come to write for the Boston music paper Fusion, as well as for Rolling Stone and other publications? I think it began because I was a very, very, I still am a very unsuccessful guitar player. And you... um, I, was, <laughs> I was playing in my band in Boston, one of my many failed bands in Boston, I would think around 1967 or 68. And Fusion Magazine, which was one of the first kind of underground music papers in America, seemed to be a place where I should advertise my upcoming gig. So I went into the Fusion offices to place an ad and began talking to the publisher, who for some reason was extraordinarily impressed with my rock knowledge and said, well, why don't you write for us? And by the way, the ad will be 10 bucks. So, <laughs> so that's how I started. I, I began writing for Fusion. 
And through Fusion, I met a lot of very interesting other rock journalists at the time, and then eventually went to write a lot for Rolling Stone, thanks to John Landau. Okay, so it's Landau who got you in there. In fact, one of the pieces we're going to feature by you on the homepage is your review of Dark Side of the Moon. You were the guy that got to review Dark Side of the Moon for Rolling Stone. And a good review it is too. It is a good review. And it was very funny. Many, many, many years later, I met David Gilmore at a party. And the first thing he said to me was, thank you. <laughs> that was so brilliant. <laughs> That's great. It, that is so great. It'd be lovely to think you were the guy really was responsible for Pink Floyd's ginormous success over the years. It was sort of probably dwarf, dwarf everything else you've accomplished. <laughs> so we've got a couple of fusion pieces. I mean, we love fusion. We've got quite a lot of fusion articles on, on Rock's Back Pages. And this was kind of the dawn of like the era of the American rock critic, wasn't it? The underground press. I mean, I think on your Wikipedia page, it, it says you wrote for the quote unquote <laughs> underground press. I mean, what, what are your memories of that time as this stuff was kind of being made up as it went along? Yeah, I mean, we were all kind of trying to be Tom Wolfe. Mm. So, you know, we were all obsessed with the new journalism, which basically meant you spent the first 250 or 500 words of any piece kind of riffing about what happened to you on the way (laughs) which pair of platform boots you were going to wear. So you you did all the self-indulgent bollock about yourself. And then finally, when you realized you were getting close to the last paragraph, you said, oh, yeah, I went to see Fleetwood Mac, and they were actually quite good. (laughs) So we we were doing a lot of that fusion had an extraordinarily intellectual and very, very brilliant editor called Robert Soma, Bob Soma, yeah. who subsequently became a judge, <laughs> an American judge, and is Seriously? now a very he became a judge. Yeah, he became a judge, and he's now an extremely successful bankruptcy lawyer in America. And Bob was very sort of plugged into the New York scene. He, w- he was very close to writers like Bob Christgau, etc., And it was just a sort of crazy time because we were making it up. And it was all rather like, what was that film called? Cameron Crowe's film. Was it called? Almost Famous. Almost Famous. It was all very much like that. I mean, I remember, you know, I was, we never got paid, by the way. I mean, at Fusion, we never got paid. We were all owed lots of money, you know, like 50 bucks or something. But we never got paid. That's why it was a relief to start working for Rolling Stone. But what I remember so vividly about that period, actually, is I'm sitting, you know, having gone to the Fusion offices, once again trying to get paid and being turned away by the publisher, going to the <laughs> local drugstore and sitting down and having, you know, in my Afghan coat, sitting in my Afghan <laughs> coat on a bar stool at the drugstore and this drinking a chocolate milkshake to sort of drown my sorrows. And um, this extraordinarily beautiful Ruby Tuesday type girl came and sat down on the bar stool next to me and just looked at me with her beautiful eyes and her beautiful face. And after about a two minute silence, she said, man, you are so yanged out. And I just thought (laughs) that for me, that sums up. That sums up the late 1960s for me, being yanged out. 
drinking a milkshake and you had your yingle missing. I think my yin had gone my yin had gone walkabout and <laughs> Bob Sommer stole his yin. <laughs> and because we never got paid by the likes of Fusion, we were sort of paid off in endless free tickets and, and you know, and white label, you know, clean album copies and all sorts of things like that. And the whole scene, I mean, there was this very lively scene. I then ended up, I think I, I bought, oh yes, I think for about $75, my brother and I bought another underground magazine, which was so unbelievably hip and intellectual and up and bottom called Vibrations. <laughs> we haven't got any copies of that. We must get Vibrations because we then teamed up. We then became the U.S. partner of ZigZag. And How do we not know this? I, 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 you know, at the time, I don't think I even knew it. But <laughs> we got sort of tied up with ZigZag. And then, I don't know, I think Vibrations published about three copies. So it is extraordinary. It was edited by a hyper-intellectual sort of Marcel Proust, no, more like a Heidegger, uh, called John Crydell, who wore a very long black coat. This was, you know, well before The Matrix had occurred to anyone. This guy wore a full-length black coat and a fedora. Kind of like a cross wow. between Heidegger, Johnny Depp, and Orson Welles. And, <laughs> and very oracular, which means I never understood anything he either said or wrote. But um, And then there was, uh, I wrote for the New York Review of Rock, which was really pretentious. I know we haven't got any copies of that either, have we? Oh, I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think <laughs> the you, don't, of human- you don't want them. They've all been pulped for the sake of mankind. I think the United Nations <laughs> ordered every copy to be pulped. And then I wrote for Cream, for Ben Edmonds at Cream, which was okay. fun. I was doing some stuff for Lester Bangs, the late great Lester. I can't remember which magazine I was writing for for him. Maybe was he, did he go to Rolling Stone at one stage? It probably would have been Cream. He did write for Rolling Stone, but I'm thinking it must have been Cream or something. But but Rolling Stone was 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 really a, t- a terrific thing. And John Landau, and this was before he became Bruce Springsteen's manager, producer, etc. John was a really wonderful commissioning editor, and and John I think decided that my forte was anything really obscure that came from the UK. So I did lots. Of, you know, I mean. I was very briefly the world's leading expert on Bloodwind Pick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You're going to have to stop being so funny. Otherwise, I'm not even going to be able to think of any questions. Mark actually has added a Groundhog's review that you're talking of British act. Oh, yeah. There's a review, isn't there, Mark, of, of a Groundhog's album that has, has also found its way into the library this week. Yeah, it's their very first album. It's, uh, it's, it's belated US release. The other three pieces, so what you were saying earlier about the, the, the sort of approach to reviewing is very much borne out by this um, very amusing review of the Bonzo Dog Band <laughs> at the Boston Tea Party. I think you, it was the, October 2nd, 1969, you toddled along to the Boston Tea Party. Age 19. A fresh age, nineteen-year-old. Age, and the dead—it's the Grateful Dead, as as far as I can tell, with the support act. But uh, the first few paragraphs are more concerned with 
for example, a young man sniffing glue out of a brown paper bag. He seems to be the guy who's enjoying himself the most, you say. (laughs) So acts like the Bonzos, you were the go-to guy to to, to write about these these strange or eccentric or, or otherwise just British acts, right? Yeah, and I mean... It's bizarre if, you know, looking at it from the, you know, as they say, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Looking back 51 years or whatever it is, the idea that the Grateful Dead were the opening act for the Bonzos is very, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) fairly strange. Yeah, I I mean, I have to confess that I'm very, very fond of specifically that period of Grateful Dead. And you're sort of brutal dismissal of them in about a sentence and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Rankled terribly. (laughs) I was a very late convert to the dead. I was not... My West Coast, my go-to West Coast bands were always people like, you know, Jefferson Airplane, who I absolutely adored, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Mm. And then I very much got into kind of the, I hate to admit it, but kind of the early sort of country and western, you know, like the Flying Burrito Brothers. and stuff. Oh, no, we love them. You don't have to apologise to us. Absolutely not. I, you might have to apologise to Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your taste is entirely your own. I, I will have no truck with it. Um, I, loved, I mean, the Flying Burrito Brothers were brilliant. But actually, back to uh, the Jefferson Airplane, I was, you know, because, are we going to talk about Judy Dibble at some stage? Yes. We are. When you said Jefferson, I played, I immediately thought, because we are going to talk about Judy well, Dibble. It's quite interesting because I, you know, thinking back to, you know, the very, very early days of Fairport Convention, they were, of course, being marketed. It seems weird now, but they were being marketed as the sort of British answer to Jefferson Airplane. So I, I was thinking, hey, did they ever do anything that sounded like Jefferson Airplane? And indeed, I was looking at a, a really good clip of them performing Time Will Show the Wiser. And it was very, very San Francisco style. I mean, it was really, really, really interesting. And I it really absolutely combination before. I, and, you know, being reminded of Judy Dibble, I mean, I remember her work with Trader Horn and so on. But, you know, her her misfortune, if it was a misfortune, was merely the fact that she was followed by, to me, the greatest ever British woman singer, Sandy Day. Yeah. And, you know, how can you, how can you, how can anyone be compared to Sandy Denny? But Judy Dibble was a very fine vocalist, very fine Yeah, I think you you put your finger on it, and yeah, a, a tough act to be followed by, as as one might say in Sandy. But yeah, I mean, I listened to to, to that Emmett Rhodes song. It's the, the first track on the first Fairport's album, and it is it's it's very airplane. I mean, Richard Thompson could have been in maybe not the Jefferson Airplane, but Richard Thompson could have been in any one of a dozen great like san francisco bands yeah. and been one of the great guitarists of that scene i think would you agree mark yeah yeah very much so you know very phenomenal so. guitar player yeah yeah in fact it's really it's him when he left fairports is when my interest in that band mm. absolutely evaporates pretty much mm. i mean the, the great version of that band obviously is the when him and sandy together and 
fabulous songwriting by English standards, really interesting production. Who was it? Joe Boyd produced. It was Joe stuff? Boyd, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But was Richard Thompson, who I agree with you, is one of the great guitarists and is quite often kind of underrated, I think. Yeah. He is a guitarist. A guitarist. Mm-hmm. Was he still in the band when they recorded Tam Lin or had he left by then? Oh, no, he was you. still in. He was still in the band. So that was on Legion Leaf. So he was definitely. In, yeah. He was still in. Yeah. You know, T- Tamlin remains. I mean, for me, such a sort of extraordinary performance by everyone. I mean, what a wonderful yeah. track. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, look, that's great. Then, so we've got Judy Dibble out of the way. Sorry, Judy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Judy Dibble passed away earlier this week, and so Who says yeah. shoe business is hard. <laughs> Absolutely. I have to ask you about. You wrote this book in 1975, published in 1975, called "A Social History of Rock." I mean, I'm. I confess to my chagrin. I haven't read it, so I don't really know. What it is? Is it a social history of rock? And just tell us briefly about that. Yeah, yes. Well, you've been very acute in guessing that it is actually a social history of rock. <laughs> so you score points for having looked up the title. Um, <laughs> I mean, it could be actually that would be a great title for some obscure, unreadable novel. Wouldn't it? Yes, <laughs> I'm sure people still buy copies of it, assuming it's a post postmodern novel. Yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> I think that's a, we could repackage it. It's um, rather disturbingly, I found it on the reading list of a couple of university sociology departments. No university you've ever heard of, by the way. But <laughs> I wish I could say that I've read it in the last 30 or 40 years, but I haven't. So I can't read it. It's great, though. I mean, it's a very important. <laughs> <laughs> do you still have a, do you have a copy? Yes, I do. I do. Here it is. Yeah. It, oh, fantastic. That's so great. It's not light reading. No, that's you, the obscure. It's not light reading. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, my mistake. (laughs) It was Tolstoy all along. Leo Tolstoy's Social History of Rock. It was compared to Tolstoy when it was... (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it was compared to Toy Story. I can't remember. One of the other. (laughs) So this book comes out, and, and then either just before that or just after it, you move to this side of the pond. You move to the UK if I've got that correct, and, you, and you've never left. You've, you've become a sort of pillar of the British establishment. Tell, give us the shorthand of how that happened, Lloyd, from fusion to becoming almost, the, almost like the greatest living Englishman with a Boston accent. <laughs> it's not a big category, that. <laughs> yeah. The greatest living Englishman, oops, with a Boston accent. <laughs> the, uh, no, I, I came over here in 1974 to, Four, okay. to go straight, as it were. Because I was told that uh, actually I should stop horsing around with my very failed guitar playing. And uh, I should stop doing that. And I should go back to university because what I really should do is be an academic, be a you know, be teach at university. So I came over here to go to the LSE, 
fabled alma mater of Mick Jagger, of course. Yes, indeed. So a fine, a fine role model. He never finished, by the way. And it, but you it, did. So I came over to the LIC to do a postgraduate degree, and then I stayed. That was kind of it, you know. I were you always intending to go back? And, yeah. Were you intending to go back, and then it yeah, just yeah. kind of never? You're still intending to go back. It just yeah. never quite happened. No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm here. But no, I was intending to go back to the States after a year, after I did my degree. But I stayed, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a girlfriend who I didn't want to leave here. And it was just fabulous to be in London, although it was a very bad time. I mean, it was during the three-day week and the IRA were blowing up lots of stuff. And, you know, in many ways to uh, uh, an American who'd you know, come from sort of rather privileged New England, you know, I arrived in, in, in Britain and it very much felt as if, you know, it was like the early 1950s. It all felt very small and, you know, and people were rather depressed and so on. But it was just fabulous. I absolutely, I totally fell in love with the place as well as with some of its inhabitants. And that was it. And I stayed. And I stayed. You got a job on Harper's and Queen. I met you when you were working for Harper's and Queen. I guess like a few years. You must have been there a few years. I would have met you around about 1980, something like that. Yeah, I started, I think I started writing for them. I, I went back. I tried once more to be a guitarist and once more failed. And then... You know, thinking, what am I going to do? I started writing again, and I started writing for Harper's, and then they offered me a job. So, yes. One of my most embarrassing memories, Lloyd, and I hope it's a memory that's been expunged from your cerebellum, (laughs) is is of getting together in some dingy little rehearsal room, I think in Waterloo, (laughs) with you and I think a Gibson SG, and I sat down at a drum kit, having never played drums (laughs) in my life, (laughs) just sort of kind of thinking it would be cool to be a drummer, and sort of thinking that if I just sat there, somehow I'd be able to drum, which within about 15 seconds (laughs) was was revealed to be a terrible delusion. And it is a mortifying memory that, occasionally causes me to wake up in a cold or well, a hot so, sweat. So mortifying, Barney, that you've never told me the story. We've been working together <laughs> yeah. for over 20 years. I, I saved it for this. <laughs> I knew this moment would come in some What form. a revelation. <laughs> what a revelation. <laughs> but you have continued, Lloyd. You've continued to... to you play with Jethro Tull, for Christ's sake. Yes, yes. I, this is unbelievable. I, so from Jet Bronx and The Forbidden to Jethro Tull, it, there's a parallel Grossman career that doesn't uh, involve through the keyhole or tomato and basil sauces or anything. This, 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 is, this is Lloyd as a rock god. Tell us about that. Well, well firstly, first, firstly, I'm very impressed that you remember my red Gibson SG. It wasn't a false memory. It is not a false memory. It's not false wow. memory syndrome. Now, interestingly, I saw when Jethro Tull made their first U.S. appearance, which I think was, I, I think it was the spring of 1969. Sounds right. 
playing at the Boston Tea Party, which, as, as you know, was the kickoff point for all British bands touring, touring the States. I saw them three nights in a row. I went to see them three nights in a row. And then years passed. Decades passed. Almost, almost half a century passed. And I hear at this stage, amongst other things, I'm chairman of something called the Church's Conservation Trust. And Jethro Tull, the original, the real Jethro Tull, is buried in one of our churchyards. And Ian Anderson comes to visit the the grave of Jethro Tull. And someone says to Ian Anderson something like, I hear you're a musician. You know that our chairman is a musician. And he says, no, really? (laughs) (laughs) We begin to, we begin to, uh, Ian and I begin to correspond. And he says, well, look, every year I play three benefit concerts to raise money for English cathedrals. Why don't you come along? And I said, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. So I went along and for the last five years, I've played three concerts a year with Jethro Tull every Christmas. It is great. We had Hugh Cornwall this, this year playing with us. And Mark Allman usually comes along for at least a couple of them. And it's just fantastic. And really, to be on stage, for me, as a failed musician, to be on stage and play locomotive breath is... That's just great. Fantastic. That's just great. So, I mean, after everything else you've achieved, is he going to say on your tombstone, failed musician? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you've done, you, you've like. achieved an extraordinary, <laughs> failed musician. He did a few. You had an incredible career, extraordinary career. Just to run, I mean, you, you invented Through the Keyhole as a kind of segment on TVAM in the 80s. You were one of the original stars on TVAM. You were the host of MasterChef for, for a whole decade. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I checked your Wikipedia page. Not no. being a sort of cooking sort of type, really. <laughs> so I saw that. And then and then halfway through that, and I guess the two things are probably connected. I'm realizing that now I, as I look at my notes, you started producing your first sources in, in the mid-90s. Yep. And that I'm guessing now is it's 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 what we might call a kind of empire, really. It means you can afford to buy books by Tolstoy and <laughs> Thomas Hardy in these beautiful editions. <laughs> How do you know that these are actually my books? Yeah, well, I was wondering if you just if you just strayed into a sort of gentleman's club somewhere. Yeah, I just actually strayed in, broke it. <laughs> It, 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 of course, it just struck me that your passion for Jeffrey Tull explains your passion for Bloodwind Pig. You were following Mick Abraham's career. Exactly. <laughs> he was your role model, not, not Sir Mick Jagger. I'm glad you made that connection. <laughs> now, what was your question? I'm sorry, I've lost track of your question. I was... I, it, it probably it probably because it wasn't a question. I was really just I was just I was just a sort of itemizing the kind of high points of of your of your career. I did want to take you back to because you, you were talking about being in London in the mid seventies, and in a way this ties in 
quite nicely with the week's new audio interview, which is which is with Brian May of Queen. And I just so before Mark tells us about this audio, I just want to ask you whether Queen were on your radar at that time, you know, in, in London. Were Queen a band that you either saw or paid any attention to? I paid attention to them when, I guess, was it their first or second? I, it, it was Sheer Heart Attack was the album mm. that I think was Queen's best. It was the first, I think it was their second album, wasn't it? Well, Queen 2, curiously, was their second oh, album. I think it might have been their Selena. third album. Oh, well, whatever. Cheer Heart Attack is the third Cheer album. Heart. Jasper's a bit of a Queen expert. We might bring him in here. Yes, Jasper. Album three is the third album. It is the third album. And it had Killer Queen on it, which is just genius. Amazing. And One of the great pop records of all time, I think. But it doesn't have Sheer Heart Attack on it, because that's on News of the World. Thank uh, God, Jasper's whoa. here. Whoa, we have, we have the pub quiz champion here. <laughs> oh, that that might be the worst thing anyone's ever described me as. Oh, right. Jasper, don't go, don't don't, don't flounce out. I'm leaving. Yes. <laughs> hey, there's a big Queen pub quiz on at the Horse and Duck. We'd better get Jasper round. <laughs> I really, I I don't know where where I've got this reputation as an expert because News of the World is just the, is my favourite Queen album. I think that might be. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> but were you were you going to sort of places like the Speak, the Speakeasy, and stuff? We, yeah. Were you seeing like Freddie Mercury in nightclubs and stuff like that? I wasn't a speak regular. I used to hang out. I love the marquee. I mean, the marquee. Yeah. I mean, I think I saw. I, I used to go to the marquee. You saw Mick Abrams there, didn't you? Admit it. I, you know something? I think I did, but he was queuing for a drink. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. No, I, I, I used to, I was a big, big fan of, of the Marquis and the 100 Club. And, of course, the late lamented, the 12 Bar Club in Denmark Street. Yeah. It was just sure. beautiful. So, no, I didn't hang out either at the Speak or the Scotch. <laughs> you were a proper yes. fan. You weren't, you weren't a ligger. No, I didn't, I didn't do, uh, no, I wasn't a ligger. God, I love the word ligger. I think Ligger is such a great word. Can we bring it back? <laughs> well, this is we're doing it right now. Oh, That's what we're doing. Mark, tell us a, tell us a bit about. So this is the new audio interview. Yeah, it's John Tobler interviewing Brian May in 1982. They just released an album called Hot Space, which I have to say is one of those Queen albums that probably no one remembers. It, apparently, it was large, terrible record, sold nothing. Absolutely, and actually, I, actually was, quite, I quite quite like a couple well, of tracks off that record. <laughs> well, it, well, he he talks in this interview about it. It's very unqueen. Yeah, it's, it's un-queen. their attempt to be funky, and this is off the back of their chic rip-off hit for the previous year. Another one bites uh, the dust. Another one bites the dust. Yeah, and they decided to like kind of follow that that particular route. So he talks about it being very black-based, very Isley Brothers influence, which is a kind of you I, don't uh, really. Queen being influenced uh, it, by the Isley Brothers. <laughs> well, well, quite. It's improbable, isn't it? So they got this uh, single called Body Language, which failed. He talks about how British are singles obsessed and so on and so forth. We'll play a clip now. This is what is quite interesting about this. This interview took place in May 1982, just when the task force had reached the Falklands. And he's talking about how big Queen were in Argentina and how fond he is of the Argent- Argentinians. So, I mean, to, to be saying this sort of stuff on English radio, and this is absolutely was, was for the BBC, at that time, I mean, 
you know, it's unpatriotic as you get. I mean, I'm absolutely really surprised to hear him saying this sort of stuff, you know, in a, in a public forum. So they haven't started burning your albums in the streets yet as a result no, of No, the... Under Pressure's number two there at the moment, I think, which is great. <laughs> so, that, you know, That's this pretty... is aimed towards them as well. You know, I'd yeah. like to think that it makes me very happy that that music does stay separate from those things. That's why, you know, we've often said that we don't consider ourselves political in any way. We don't, you know, it's mm. it becomes borderline, you know, because we've... We would advocate peace, if anything, and if and that can be interpreted as being political as well. But it's not really. It's just a, it's just saying that uh, you know there are certain things more important than than uh, yeah. fighting for things. We feel very close to those people still, and I I can't imagine that anything is important enough for us to be killing them and then and for them to be killing us. I know it's not a popular view in this country at the moment, but. Uh, to us, if, you, see, if you've been there and you've lived with them and you realise that they're very much like us, it's, it becomes harder and harder to justify the use of force, I think, in any circumstances. Sure. To say that in, on British Radio, May 1982, was actually quite gutsy. But it has to be said, this isn't the most fascinating interview we've ever put up on Rock's Back Pages. Let's so face it, he's a fearful bore, isn't he? He is a fearful bore, is dear <laughs> Mr. May. Are we going to play the Under Pressure clip later, Barney, or are we going to play it now? I tell you what, let's play it in a second. But just to point out that this absolute non-event of an album, even if Jasper has a soft spot for it, was sort of bookended by these two enormous hits, wasn't it? There was Under Pressure just before it. 81, and then, and then not long after at Radio Gaga. So it's this kind of strange non-event in the life of Queen be- between, like, colossal hits. Shall we listen to the clip now? Absolutely. This is him talking about doing Under Pressure with David Bowie. Now, it's got to be remembered that even though this is on the album, it wasn't part of the album in terms of it wasn't recorded as part of the process. It doesn't of sound like the album, no. really. It's a very long story, actually, which will be told some other time, I think. Okay. It was quite a painful experience, certainly for me. But, um, yes, it it was truly cooperative, particularly in the beginning. You know, I think when we were setting down the backing track, you know, everyone was contributing ideas and we were working together quite well. As the evening progressed, it became more and more difficult because we all had different ideas of how it should shape up. And we're used to the four of us arguing together, but when there's someone else there who's considerably more picketty than any of us, which takes some doing, I'll tell you, <laughs> then it, you know, it becomes a, difficult to even find any kind of compromise. Wonderful. So uh, in the end, I sort of let them get on with it, to be honest. But I thought the end result was worthwhile anyway. It's not, uh, not perfect by anyone's book, but uh, an interesting exercise and, and a... Something nice to, you know, a little sort of memento in some ways. <laughs> a chart topper too. Pressure, 
worthwhile, worthwhile. I David mean, Bowie, pig-headed. That's I know, it's fantastic. <laughs> That's the takeaway I mean, from that. It, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic record, isn't it? Under pressure. What's, what's your, what's your line on Under Pressure, Lloyd? Oh, I, I think Under Pressure is a brilliant recording. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favourite sort of later period Queen recordings. I, I really, I just think it's terrific, actually. And it's really nice. I mean that. That's John Tobler doing the interview, yeah? Yes. And he was, John was involved in Zigzag. He of was a course. man. Worlds colliding. Worlds colliding here. <laughs> hey, that's yeah. Brian May. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Brian is not scintillating, is he really, in this interview? I mean, in a strange sort of way, because we have a Freddie Mercury audio on the site, and Freddie isn't, you expect Freddie to be wonderfully flamboyant and camp, and he's he's kind of rather serious too. I suspect, Queen were rather serious and rather po-faced about this this absurd pompous music that they made. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I suspect none of us are sort of, apart from Jasper and News of the World, of course, massive Queen fans, but they are a British institution, rather like Lloyd Grossman. They're on stamps this week. I have this theory about Queen. I may have expounded it previously on this podcast. I don't know. But I think that they're like simultaneously over and underrated. Yeah. They're vastly overrated as this pompous British institution, operatic, blah, blah, blah. And underrated as a hard rock band. I think they're a really, really good hard rock band for a while. And I think that some of those early records have some real meat on them. And, and just, it's not sort of world beating, but it's, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. You know they are wonderful musicians. Yeah, yes. they're yeah. they're just good players, and 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 I mean Freddie Mercury, just incredible performer, incredible vocalist. Yeah, and that's one of the things about this non-album hot stuff is that actually Freddie's voice is so hot great. Space, hot, sorry, yeah, hot stuff non-album the, hot, hot, space. hot stuff was the Stones' attempt at, at funky disco music, wasn't well, it? There you go. <laughs> Freddie's voice is so great that on some of the tracks, when it's allowed to shine with some vocal harmonies and stuff, it's great. No matter what the slightly unconvincing funkiness of it, it's there's some there's some good stuff, even if it's not well, Queen like. Now, this is a, a, a sort of nerdish question that only Barney can answer. Wasn't Hot <laughs> Stuff some terrible disco single by Donna Summers? It was. Yes, it was. It was, it was. So the Stones did a Hot Stuff, and Donna did a, a whole album called... No, the, the album was called Bad Girls, wasn't it? And the first track was Hot Stuff. Fantastic. I, Donna. I thought Donna Summers was brilliant, actually. Oh, yeah. I loved her music. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So going back to this interview, quite an interesting story that the people they chose to tour with them to support them, they chose Bow Wow Wow of all people, which is really kind of an odd sort of choice. And he talks about how Bow Wow Wow just went down so badly with European audiences. They'd be sort of basically bottled off the stage and how they left the tour in the end. She sort of says they shouldn't have really done that. You know, they should have stuck with it. But, I mean, I just find it interesting that Queen should choose Bow Wow Wow of all people. And he's saying, you know, they should get rid of their manager, which, of course, is Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> he's holding them back. Yeah. So, so I mean, that, that's, that, that's essentially the audio. It's, it's, it's got some interesting bits in it. But, you know, dear old Brian, bit boring. Yes. <laughs> now, it was interesting to hear you and, indeed, Brian, talk about the Falklands and Argentinians. Because the next thing that I really want to talk about parallels this, and this is so this this week sees 
the release of the new album by the group now known as The Chicks. 2003, March 2003, as many will recall, not far from the Roxback Pages office, Mark, Natalie Maines of, of the then Dixie Chicks made this slightly off the cuff remark about the President of the United States, who at that time was George W. Bush, and she said the impending invasion of Iraq made her ashamed to be and made them ashamed to be from Texas. And my God, you know, if you think that, you know, John Lennon's remarks about the Beatles being bigger than Jesus was provocative. I mean, this saw the most horrifying, really chilling sort of backlash against them. The most just awful things, you know, their their albums literally being sort of crushed and then being dropped from every country radio station, so on and so forth. I mean, in a sense, their career never recovered from it. So the free feature of the week consists of three pieces about them, including a long interview three years later, 2006, from Playboy, where they talk about the impact on their lives and the fear that they lived in. I had really forgotten before I reread Dave Marsh, the first piece by Dave Marsh, just being at his very best, his absolute outrage at the way they're, they're being treated. Mm. And then Andrea Lyle, meeting them in Memphis when they're playing Memphis in October of that year. I mean, Lloyd, I just wanted to ask you whether you have any memories of that as an American living here. What is, what's, I mean, cause this is such a sort of harbinger of every, of everything that we're in now. What, what, what is your view eh, of like the sort of country music establishment, its relationship with religious right-wing fundamentalism and so forth. And do you remember what happened with the Dixie Chicks? Yes, I mean, it wasn't as big a news story here as it was in in the States. And I was kind of surprised at the extraordinary level of outrage and and hatred that it stirred up. But what's kind of interesting is looking at it in the context of today's so-called cancel culture, where we now tend to think, you know, the, the, the prevailing wisdom now is that cancel culture is kind of like a left-wing phenomenon and mm-hmm. attempt to stifle, you know, the right. And, you know, if we go back to the Dixie Chicks episode, I mean, that's a, a real example of sort of right-wing cancel culture. Yeah, sure. So in the context of, of, of today, it's, it's quite interesting, the idea that, you know, they should be gagged because they said something that was politically inc- incorrect. You know, the country establishment, I mean, yeah, I love country music and i've always loved the people who have played you know country as it were within rock beginning with the birds and the burrito brothers i don't really know much about the structure of country music you know i'm i'm not really sure what sort of what sort of social phenomenon it is anymore because a lot of people like me who would have been ashamed to say they were fans of country have now come out and say actually you know we love country and the reason yeah. And the good things about country music, and I'm not talking about its political context, are the fact that, number one, the musicianship is absolutely off the charts in terms of virtuosity. The country players are way beyond most people. And secondly, one really kind of likes that sort of slightly corn-pone emotional authenticity of country music. (laughs) Other than that, I I haven't studied the phenomenon enough to to really say anything illuminating about the social, political context. 
I, I, I think it's really interesting that country music has always had a very reactionary, had reactionary elements to it. I mean, Gene Guerrero, who's one of our writers who wrote for a really great talk, parallel an Atlanta underground magazine called Great Speckled Bird was writing about country music in like 69 and 70 for an underground paper. And you feel he's writing about the enemy, the cultural enemy to, to, to these long hairs in Atlanta. But it's become extraordinarily reactionary in recent years. The likes of Billy Ray Cyrus and all those people. They may as well have George Bush slash Donald Trump tattooed on their well, arms. Well, Toby Keith being, being probably the uh, worst absolutely. exemplar of that. I mean, Billy Ray Cyrus at least did collaborate with Lil Nas X on Old Town yeah. Road. Yes, that's true. Right? But, but, I mean, but, 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 but I mean, the, the, the country music has, I think, actually moved to the right, as have parts of America. It's, mm. it's kind of followed that sort of thing. And the Dixie Chicks were always slightly outside of this. And now, of course, interestingly, they've dropped the word Dixie from the band name, which is very much about removing statues, removing the Confederate flag yeah. and so yeah. on and so forth, which is a really... I mean, the fact that this band has survived after everything that's happened to them and clearly been doing well enough to actually, actually survive is fantastic. And it shows that they are aware of what, what's going on. I, I have a lot of admiration for them. Do I love the music they make? Not desperately, you know? But, but I have a lot of time for them as women. And, I, you know, dropping the, the word Dixie from their name, pretty good thing to do right now. Well, same thing with Lady Antebellum, of course. Have, have, yes. Have dropped, dropped, they've <laughs> now become Lady A, but that's then brought them into a massive, like, legal bun fight yeah. with an artist called Lady A. So, I mean, look, it's a fascinating time. All of these things are really sort of, you know, sort of coming together, aren't they? I mean, there was a really interesting piece I chanced on that, from the Atlantic magazine published yesterday called Country Music Can No Longer Hide Its Problems by a guy with a very American name, Spencer Kornhaber. Uh, I hope I pronounced that right. <laughs> but it's really, it's, <laughs> it's a very interesting piece about just saying that, that country is coming to a kind of point of reckoning, really, in terms of all sorts of things, including its African-American artists and how they're feeling in, in, in the wake of the BLM marches and protests. But just sort of like, you know, when is country going to sort of, you know, when are people who aren't in the Toby Keith camp going to kind of speak up? You know, the thing that was so incredibly brave about the Dixie Chicks was that they, you know, they, they didn't apologise. They, they, they didn't retreat to save their career. You know, um, you could say, well, they'd sold millions of albums already at that point. But I mean, you know, so many people, everyone from like Dolly Parton will never say who, how she votes. Yeah. yeah. To give you an example. I, it's what, What's interesting to me, I mean, uh, yeah, look, the Dixie Chicks, I mean, they made, to me, the song of theirs that I most like is the one about the whole controversy, which is not ready to make nice, which I think mm -hmm. really yeah. phenomenal piece yeah. of music. I think this raises the, a whole question of maybe artists should just shut up and not tell us about their political. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one way to approach it. You know, unless someone is making overtly political music, and of course, a lot of uh, the great artists have made very overtly political music. Maybe if they're not making overtly political music, we shouldn't really care about their political opinions. 
I mean, I think it's difficult at times like this because the stuff that's going on isn't strictly just political. It's about a much broader set of cultural things, which particularly with music, it impinges because, let's say, if you talk about all African-American music is a response to the white America that they, they, they live in and so on and so forth. <laughs> it's difficult. It's difficult. One. I mean, you, have to, you can only look as, look as far as someone you just mentioned, Barney, Lil Nas X. There was massive backlash when he came out as gay, you know, while having number one on the country charts and all the other charts as well with Old Town Road. I mean, you can't say that, you know, what's, what's he supposed to do? Not come out as gay? Like, it's, that's not a political statement, but it had a very political response, which, you know, I don't think it's easy to divorce those two things. I think Lil Nas X is is pretty great for that, actually. Cowboy Glam is a (laughs) a hell of a look. Is there a track called Cowboy Glam? No, no, no. I'll describe the genre you've invented for him. He he is Cowboy Glam. That's great. That's fantastic. You know, I, I think somewhere there is a really extraordinary history of Black American culture and how it relates to co- to country and western, because in many ways it it does. And oh yeah, you know. And- I, I mean, I mean, you know, Barney will know better than anyone else how close southern soul was to country music, and how the the songs were swapped back and forth between the between the two. I mean, you can take this right back to Wynonie Harris singing "Don't Roll Those Bloodshot Eyes at Me," which is a country tune. You know, the, 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 song. Yeah, the, there's, there's, been, there's been so much overlap there. All you know, and, for, and originally, originally is what we call country and western. Is it, as it were, the white man's equivalent of the blues? Is well, how, indeed. Is that how it, it starts? And then you well, get it, extraordinary crossovers with people like I mean, one of my all-time favorites, and I urge you to really get into his work if you haven't, is Tony Joe White. Oh, oh yes. Yes, we met Tony it's, Joe White, didn't we? His synthesis of country and blues is just one of the most remarkable yeah. things I've ever heard. Great, great, great artist he is. Yeah. He was. Yeah. I, but I have to say, I, I think that outside of the, the example you mentioned, Billy Ray Cyrus, and, is that the, the crossover between black and white music really sort of broke apart somewhere around the early 70s, is that the black music and white music went very much in their own different directions. My contention, I mentioned this before on the podcast, is that's about the, as much about the, uh, the emergence of FM radio and how American popular radio became split into sub-genres and sub-genres and sub-sub-genres. Anyway... Anyway, um, Mark, since, yeah. since, since Elvis did Poke Sour Danny, are you by any chance going to tell us about an extraordinary thing we have on Rock's Back Pages this week, which is an interview with Elvis Presley? Yeah, well, I'm going to step back a, a moment before then. There's something else, first thing I want to talk about, is Lillian Roxon, the wonderful Lillian Roxon, saw James Brown play Madison Square Garden in 1966. Now, this is... James Brown has just invented funk. Papa's got a brand-new bag that just come out a few months before this, you know. And she just loves it. She says, he tears onto the stage as if he can't wait. His suit is carefully tailored to look as if it might rip at the flexing of an extra muscle. His boots twinkle and flicker in the bright light. His hair, which he sets every day to straighten it, is in a high-teased pompadour like a black cloud. His dark boxer's face is already glistening. And that's just, I think, a fantastic snapshot of James Brown, you know, at, at his very best. You, know. Lloyd, you must have been in Boston the night that there, there was the race riot in Boston and, and James Brown. 
my memory is slightly murky here, but James Brown was 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 there, I think, and and came out and made a kind of statement about it. Did you see James Brown in a play in Boston by any chance? I have seen James Brown perform. I saw James Brown though at the Apollo. Oh uh, wow! In, in New York, we were very one of the one of the great things uh, in in Boston. Growing up in Boston was there was this fabulous black radio station called WILD. Wild. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, we used to listen to Wild because that's where you could, you know, that's when I fell in love with people like Dyke and the Blazers. You know, yes. one of my right. old bands. And then there was this period where a lot of bands were emerging out of that particular black music milieu and doing crossover stuff. You know, the wonderful, the Chambers Brothers. I don't yeah. know if you remember the Chambers Brothers. Sure, with time has come yeah. today. Psychedelic funk, you know, time yeah. and all of that stuff. You know, we were lucky to have a great, great, great black music station. So, you know, from the time I was a teenager, I was very familiar with James Brown's stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Moving on to, this is what originally you were talking about, Barney. Uh, Daily Express, 1968, an Ivor Davis interview with Elvis Presley. Now, first of all, there were very few Elvis Presley interviews. He basically stopped doing press remarkably early. Mm. It's not a long interview, but, it, you know, it's a face-to-face one. And Elvis says, my early fans are now young mothers, and they just don't swing the way they did when they were 14. Right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. And then he says, he says, my audiences are in the small towns. Actually, this is interesting. He says, my audiences are in the small towns. They're the backbone of my crowd. And I've never gone great guns with the big city folk. That really caught my eye. And yeah. in, fact, and in fact, I've made it the poor quote on the homepage this oh, cool, week. Because yeah. it kind of speaks to, in a sense, what we were talking about earlier. You know, that Elvis was... Well, you know, we don't need to sort of cite public enemy here. But Elvis, you know, he did appeal to, I suppose, what you would kind of call the, what you'd call now the Trump heartland. And one does sort of wonder if Elvis hadn't died, you know, would he be probably running almost, for office? He certainly <laughs> would be. Yes. No, we're not running for, yeah, running for office, exactly. Yeah, but probably, if not rooting for Donald Trump, I, I, I hate to think that, but I think it's probably true. Yeah. Well, there was that, you know, the, the famous photograph of him with Nixon in the White House. Yeah. <laughs> precisely, but precisely. I was thinking that, uh, I remember when, when Tony Joe White died, there was a fantastic obituary of him. And this wonderful quote, he said, he said something like, I've had a great life. It was really cool hanging out with Elvis and Tina Turner. But what I really like doing is sitting on the back porch looking at the sure. weather. I thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this Ivor Davis—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, just to put it in context. I think it's backstage, just before he's about to do the famous comeback special TV show. Yeah, that's right. Which is—is is sort of like almost for some people, I would say almost for me, like the greatest moment of Elvis's career. He was just so fabulous in in that show, and it just reminded us of how great he had been in the 50s. Yeah, you you say that, Barney, but I'll never forgive him for him grabbing Scotty Moore's electric guitar and playing that, leaving Scotty Moore to strum an acoustic when they were recreating the sun stuff. That really pissed me off. Yeah, Um, good point. (laughs) I've been travelling over mountains Even through the valleys too Traveling night and day, I've been running all the way, baby, trying to get to you. 
Moving on to 1970, and I just mentioned this is Pink Floyd, Kevin Ayers and Whole World, the Edgar Broughton Band, Ooh. formerly Fat Harry, Roy Harper, all playing free concerts in the park. All Lloyd's favourite bands. Well, I'm only mentioning this because I was there, and I thought the Pink Floyd bored me to pieces, but Kevin Ayers and Whole World with Robert Wyatt on drums, a very young Mike Oldfield playing bass, right. Dave Bedford on keyboards, and Lowell Coxall playing soprano saxophone were electrifyingly oh, no good. It, they were just fantastic. And a week later, I was walking down King's Road near where I lived in those days, and Lowell was busking, this bald-headed, shaven-headed guy in a, uh, in a tie-dyed T-shirt with a soprano sax was busking. And I went up to him, I was 14, I went up and said... I saw you in Hyde Park last week, and it was really brilliant. And he was really sweet. He said, oh, oh. thank you. You know, really nice to hear. And, so I just, and, and then, then said, so give me some money, kid. <laughs> Here's my pocket money, lol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All my pocket money, lol. <laughs> um, but, but, no, I, I remember that really clearly. Was, uh, I mean, you know, there's, uh, talking about Red SGs, I, I think I probably fell in love with the Red SG then because the lead guitarist from formerly Fat Harry wielded one. <laughs> I said, it, was Lloyd, it was the one Lloyd bought. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to admit this, given the fact that I was the Rolling Stones specialist on obscure British rock bands. I've never heard of formerly fat. <laughs> oh, I, I, think, I think you only ever heard of them if you went to the free concerts in the park, because they always what? turned up. <laughs> them Uninvited. <laughs> Them and the Edgar Broughton band would always be on. There'd be the, 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 the Black Hill Enterprises banner over the stage, about four rickety WEM 4x12 columns as the PA system, and formerly Fat Harry in the middle, <laughs> making kind of really dull Those noise. were the days. Those were uh, the days. Further funny thing about Lowell Coxhill is that later in his recording career, he recorded an album with two musicians, one of whom was one of my sax teachers, one of whom was one of my piano teachers, for an album whose cover was designed by my mum. So That's fantastic. Oh, my God. Was your mum there, there at the free concert in the park? Okay, I've got to... <laughs> she would not I've, I've, Number one, just formerly Fat Harry, I guessed correctly that they were, of course, signed to Harvest. <laughs> <laughs> Harvest was... Harvest the, had, like, yeah. You know, they had... Remember Henry Cow? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. But get this. Now, this is fascinating. That formerly Fat Harry was led by the former bassist of Country Joe and the Fish. Well, that's right. That well, I didn't right. know that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is right. Uh, he, he, he didn't even really lead them, I think. But, you know, he was probably over here avoiding the draft. That's oh, probably why. Whoa. <laughs> You'll be hearing from his lawyers. <laughs> well, there's okay. a little nugget of information yeah. for you to take to the pub quiz with you, Jasper, <laughs> just in case you get asked about formerly Fat Harry. Okay, moving on to the 1973. Uh, again, Lillian Roxon for the New York Sunday News. And she's interviewing Michelle Phillips. And it's a really interesting thing. Michelle Phillips is just reinventing herself as a movie star. But basically, this interview is all about her time with the mamas and the papas. And she talks about how Mama Cass was very envious of Michelle Phillips's looks. And she says, it wasn't just a one-way thing. I was jealous of Cass, too. Her voice was so much better than mine, which, you know, is just true. And then she's, she's asked, you know, why Mama Cass's career hasn't really picked, taken off after leaving the Mamas and Papas. And she says, Cass needs the discipline and iron hand of someone like John. He used to tell us what to do, and we did it. 
So, you know, John Phillips' band. It's a really good interview. Great. Very briefly, Archie Bell interviewed by Robin Katz Record Mirror in 1977. Archie Bell, head drill. And he's talking about... Well, he disapproves of 12-inch singles. He's saying, in 25 years' time, when oil is rare, what do you think of this kind of indulgence? But what will make record on, records on then? Wax paper? <laughs> you know, because it was the height of the oil crisis. <laughs> of course. 1978, San Francisco Examiner, Philip Elwood sees the Sex Pistols' last ever show. Well, not actually last ever show, because they got together again hideously many, many years later. And Philip Elwood's a jazz critic, basically. And so the idea of him reviewing a punk show is inherently hilarious. Though it turns out later on he became very fond of The Clash. But anyway, he says, the Pistols are, of course, not an attractive or sophisticated quartet. They're not supposed to be. In fact, one of the distressing things about their show is that they don't know how to be offensive enough. <laughs> Bassist said vicious drink sale and spits it out at the crowd. Singer Johnny Rotten pretends to blow his nose on stage and he frequently uses naughty four-letter words, singing, shouting, screaming. It's a very dyspeptic review, this, you know. He's, Does he quote the famous line, ever had no. the feeling you've been cheated? No. no Maybe he didn't no, hear he, it. Perhaps he's he gone did. to the bar. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I'm still rendered speechless by the idea of Archie Bell being such a perceptive futurologist. (laughs) (laughs) One of the great 12 inches that I own, I think you might have it at your gaff, Mark, is is the 12 inch of strategy by Archie Bell and the Drills. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic record. Extended mix of that, fabulous. Actually, actually, there's one other quote from him I'll mention. It's because it's at a time when a lot of singers are going back into the church. And he says, I think Al Green and Phil Winner, the spinners, used going back to the church as an excuse to cop out. That's Archie, Archie, <laughs> Archie, Archie. Archie. Robust opinions. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Smash Hits 1985, uh, really kind of David Keeps, who actually wrote quite a lot for Smash Hits, I've discovered. So we got a lot of stuff to use Well, and, and started the American equivalent, which was, was called Star Hits. They put uh-huh. him in charge of Star Hits, but it oh, never quite right. took off in the same way. Sure. Well, he uh, interviewed Madonna, and, you know, Madonna's being Madonna. She says, I can be really snotty to people, but that's not anything new, really. I always acted like a star long before I was one. I find that so hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever Um, met Madonna, Lloyd? No, you know, I was... You didn't do it through the keyhole on Madonna's... (laughs) Celebrity master show? Celebrity (laughs) (laughs) When When I was working for the Sunday Times... I said, now, when was this? I said, look, there are these three fantastic new acts in America that we ought to write about. And the three fantastic new acts were Madonna, Prince, and ZZ Top. And and they looked at me as if, why do we want to write about these people? I said, because they are all going to be huge. And so I went, and I actually went out to see, I saw Madonna do a very early uh, concert performance in San Diego, and I rang back to my editor saying, this woman is unbelievable. We've got to... Mm -hmm. 
No, yeah. nothing, nothing. Yeah. Uh, a little perceptive British editor there. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, 1991 NME, and this is um, Anthony H. Wilson, Tony Wilson, Factory Records, being interviewed by Stuart McConey. 1991, he says everything's going to be okay. In fact, the whole thing collapsed about a year later. This is getting towards the end of Factory Records. They were in deep debt, uh, I, I believe had sold a chunk of the label to whichever conglomerate it was that bought them. Uh, but he's very funny and great, as usual. He says, you're taking the piss now, and I know it. And rest assured, I enjoy our relationship. I enjoy spending my afternoons being asked silly questions by Stuart McConey. <laughs> 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 Which I just love. He says, I spent half my time my life explaining and apologising for Rob Gretton. Rob Gretton being New Order's ma- uh, manager. and so He's the ultimate Mancunian. And I think this is the thing with Factory. We are very Mancunian. That's what makes, makes us so special. And the last one is great. It says, in 1980, Morrissey told me he was going to be a pop star. And I said, Stephen, write your novel. <laughs> oh, don't, don't encourage. I just wanted to, to mention, because Stuart McConey did come up with the greatest title for any music book ever, which was Cider with Roadies. <laughs> oh, I love it. Very good. Just fantastic. Um, just a passing mention for Stephen Dalton's NME 1992 review of the High Llamas' Apricots mini album. I know you mentioned that because I co-produced it. Yes, you did. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't insert yourself into the descriptive copy about this article, Mark. It's very <laughs> self-effacing of you. I shall have to add that now. <laughs> and uh, and very, very last thing I want to mention is it's a really interesting re- review with Jackson Brown by Rob Tannenbaum for GQ in 1993. And it's, it's a tough one. He gives... Jackson Brown had been sort of accused of wife-beating. There was well, lots he, he, of... Yeah, he'd hit Daryl Hannah, hadn't he? That's right. And it's kind of Rob Tannenbaum challenges on this quite a few times in this interview. Mm. Jackson Brown is very prickly. And uh, it's just one of those difficult journalist artist encounters you occasionally get. But he's quite interesting because at one point I realised I can't remember anything about my childhood. It's not like nothing happened. You know, he's he's a strange covenant. But anyway, so that that's my lot. Is that your, that's your lot. That's just my lot. lot. Have you got anything for us before we we we, yeah, we, we just, wave goodbye? Since we are nearly out of time, I'll just mention a couple of things. First of which is a really interesting four book review. Ian Penman gets to grips with four different books about hip hop for The Wire in May 2000. And he has really, it's very academic as a lot of the impediments writing is, but it's very, very good. Mm-hmm. He writes, I can't help but feel his notion of a true understanding of hip hop runs counter to the deconstructive truth of hip hop, especially as the illogic of sampling has overturned all sureties regarding copyright attribution and univocal truth. Hip hop represents itself in a series of flashes and breaks, as much like Burroughs cut ups or comic strips as African griot and old school R&B. Can you copyright a technique or a phrase or a hand signal? Can you copyright artistic theft? I think it's just a really interesting yeah, take on, sure, on yeah. someone trying to write about hip-hop America. Well worth a read. I'm a big fan of Ian Penman's later writing. I find his early stuff to the enemy really indigestible. One other thing I'll mention for you, Barney. Now, this is a review of an OK Go album by John Calvert in The Quietus on the 18th of January 2010. OK Go are that band that had a massive viral hit with a song called Here We Go Again, where they did a sort of thing on treadmills. And it was like one of the very early viral videos. And they're pretty sort of power poppy kind of band. John Calvert doesn't like them very much. He says, 
But it's fruity, fun, witty, animated. It's light entertainment. Don't take us so seriously. Well, while there's an obvious pop mouse at work, so anxious they are to telegraph this kookiness, lest they betray their self-seriousness, that OKGO's purported fun side is really vapidity, posing as postmodern savvy. The plastered smile of an aimless unit losing the battle of who could care less. It's like laughing at yourself nervously before anyone else can. Fountains of Wayne, this way lies. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes. I know that Barney absolutely adores Fountains of Wayne, so perhaps you should listen to some OK Go. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the tip. Are you cognizant of the works of Fountains of Wayne, Lloyd? I believe I'm familiar. They had one hit single, didn't they? Uh, Stacey's yeah, mum? Stacey's mom. Yeah. Stacey's so, yeah, mom. Okay. Um, Rachel Hunter. I'm very cognizant of Rachel Hunter, more so than <laughs> Fountains of Wayne. <laughs> is is right was she in the video and is she like rod was she rod stewart's missus or something like that who is rachel hunter who is rachel hunter that's like the supreme court judge saying uh what is a t-shirt i mean Barney, Barney, what rock have you been living under for the last 40 a, 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 a very big rock um but i'm <laughs> trying back, to <laughs> call back pages yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was she, was she was she Rod's lady, or was she no? Amongst many other achievements. Okay. <laughs> and, and I, I can I can only I can only suggest that occasionally you should unlock the front door of your ivory tower and um, and mix with the people, and then you, you just know- open the wind, open the wind, the shutters, and and yeah. and, and gaze over the valley of life. Yeah, so just, you know, immerse yourselves in, in what the populace is interested in. <laughs> it's too late, Lloyd. It's too yeah, late. It's, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Jasper, any, any other treats or goodies That's, for us? That is, that is all I, I think we are out of time, so I'll leave it there. Wonderful. Okay, well, just Lloyd, what, what an absolute treat it's been to have you in what some refer to as the rocks back pages cupboard thanks for giving <coughs> up your presumably you've got to go back and sort of stir a giant vat of of sauce somewhere <laughs> after this or do what i mean you, you are you're not just lloyd grossman you're lloyd grossman obe and i should have introduced you as that with a doffing of the cap i mean you and you sit on numerous boards you you do an enormous amount. What what are you actually doing before we say a final goodbye? What, what are you? What's keeping you busy at this very well, moment the, the in big, lockdown? The big thing at the moment, and it's been exceptionally busy because of uh, the pandemic, is my job as chairman of the Royal Parks. Right. You know, keeping the parks open and in good shape has never been more important. So that's uh, that's taking quite a, quite yeah. a lot of time. So I haven't been able to swat up for the next quiz at the dog and duck. So I, <laughs> <laughs> It was I, the horse and duck, Lloyd. It was the horse I, and duck. I accept, I, I expect that once again, Jasper will walk away with that £10 Amazon gift voucher. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, th- thank you so much. We're going to say goodbye in two weeks. We hope to have a compatriot of yours, Lloyd, Mary Harron, on the Rocks Back Pages podcast to talk about the New York scene in the 70s, probably to mention Lester Bangs perhaps to talk about American Psycho and Betty Page and other things. But until then, we would all like to thank you so much for giving out your time, 
to reminisce about the really important part of your life, which is when you were writing for nothing for Fusion. (laughs) Well, next time time I will tell you about my misspent days hanging around at Max's Kansas City and the Chelsea. Oh, Uh, we we look forward to that. Thanks again so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye from all of us. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. That was the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Lloyd Grossman. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.